Minority Retort on X-Ray FM. X-Ray FM. Minority Retort with Jason Lamb. Hey, everybody. It's time for another edition of Minority Retort. My name is Jason Lamb, and I'm the co-host and co-producer of Minority Retort, the comedy show, which you can see at the Siren Theater. That's a stand-up comedy show that features all black and brown comedians, hosted by myself, Julia Ramos, and then a rotating cast of black and brown comedic characters. But here on this show, we don't just talk to comedians and talk about comedy. We also talk to other talented, creative, and thoughtful people of color who are doing big things in the community and the world at large. Which brings me to today's guest, who is a returning guest to the program. And he played in the NFL. But since then, he is taken to academia and, and achieving quite a bit there. And is a published author. In fact, he joined us last to talk about his book, Not For Long, The Life and Career of an NFL Athlete. And uh, he's back today to join us to talk about what's been going on in the sports world uh, and how it relates to what we're all seeing all around us and what's happening in the world. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the show, Dr. Robert W. Turner II. Dr. Turner, how are you? I'm doing fine, and it's great to, to be here. I, I really appreciate it. I think you remember the last time we spoke. I have family that's up in the uh, Portland area. My, my nephew, Cole Turner, went to Clackamas High School and is now uh, a scholarship uh, tight end and moving from wide receiver to tight end there at uh, up at uh, University of um, Nevada at Reno. And then I have um, a, a niece that's playing volleyball at Clackamas High School, another one that went to Jesuit High School. So it's really always good to be back on the radio uh, up in that area. Oh, fantastic. Yes. You, sounds like you have strong ties to the, uh, to the community up here. Um, so yes, and I really appreciate you coming back on the show. Um, but, you know, the last time you were on the show, the world was much different. Um, and, you know, in fact, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, since we spoke, had won the Super Bowl uh, this, this past NFL season. Um, and even in that span of time, uh, from from last February when they won that championship. And as they prepare to take the field, um, as we record this, uh, this week to start the 2020 season, uh, the world is completely uh, different in a lot of ways. You know, the sports world is a microcosm of society, as has been said uh, many times. And we're seeing the effects of what's happening in the world, not only just in terms of the pandemic, but also in terms of the fight for uh, racial justice and the fight against police brutality. And it just occurred to me that it would be a good time to have you back on the show to, to get your thoughts about what's going on in the, in the sports world and how it relates to uh, the, the larger world. And I first want to ask you about what happened a couple of weeks ago uh, in the NBA playoffs. Uh, as most people know, the NBA playoffs resumed um, in Orlando, Florida, at a sports, a dedicated sports complex that's nicknamed the Bubble. And since they shut down the NBA season, a uh, regular season, uh, George Floyd was, of course, um, killed. And just recently in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, Jacob Blake uh, was shot seven times in the back by a police officer. And the Milwaukee Bucks 
professional basketball team in, in Milwaukee. Uh, they were the number one seed in the East, uh, Eastern Conference of the NBA. And the Jacob Blake shooting happened right in the middle of the playoffs series that they were having with the Orlando Magic. And at a certain point, they, the team decided that they would not take the floor to play that playoff game uh, against Orlando in, in protest of what happened essentially in their, uh, in their backyard of the, uh, where their fans root for them. Um, and I wanted to, to find out from you whether or not athletes protesting or using their platform to protest and make statements as a season is going on, how effective that is in your view. What, what strikes you about what the Milwaukee Bucks did and, and how effective athletes protesting while they're playing is versus not playing? Well, first of all, I think, um, one, I thank you for that question because I think it's deep and it's complex. And I think we could probably sit here over a beer and and talk about that for a couple of hours, just this one question. But I'll just share a couple of thoughts off the top of my head, right? For one, I think it was incredibly brave for them to be able to do that. But then you can also put that in the context of, um, you know, here are millionaires deciding that they're not going to play and how much did it actually cost them financially and they wind up to continue to play that kind of stuff. So, you know, the bravery that I'm talking about is more symbolic. Um, It's a statement where they're just saying, hey, we're standing up and we're not um, taking this. And it's part of a broader overall discussion. But I think particularly for them, it's real important for me, for the way I look at it, for two reasons. One is it was pointed out in the news, I think Wesley Lowry of 60 Minutes pointed out uh, or made the statement that Milwaukee is often uh, referenced as the Selma of the North, right? And I have to tell you, I lived in Milwaukee for a while while I was doing, had a dissertation fellowship there at the Marquette University. And um, the racial, I guess you could say segregation in that town was palpable. I could, you, you could, you could experience it in, in a lot of different ways. And people there just took it as though this was commonplace. And it was, you know, blacks were segregated from whites and who were segregated from Hispanics. It was like, depending on, you know, you didn't even have to know if a, a person's uh, race, you just knew where they lived in the city. And that was not long ago. That was, you know, 2009, 2010, as I was doing my dissertation. So, you know, I think that, that has a lot to do with it that maybe people don't around the rest of the country don't think about is what these athletes themselves were seeing and experiencing by living in Milwaukee during the the season. So I think that that had a lot to do with it. I think another thing that was really important in the discussion or their decision was Sterling Brown, what he went through there at the hands of the police in in the Milwaukee area. Also, I think Henderson, John Henderson was there where he uh, had, you know, he was trying to buy a watch at a, at a, uh, at a jewelry store. And he had the police call on I mean, the, the, the attendant at the store called the police on him and said they were afraid that, you know, he was somebody who was trying to rob the place. So, I mean, you know, in a certain respect, just their day-to-day experiences was something that they could really relate to about the brother getting shot in the back, right? So that, I think it has a lot to go with, they were trying to make a statement locally every much as they were trying to make a statement uh, nationally. Um, And so that's one way to look at it and why I think it's really important. Uh, But in another way, how effective, and when you ask that, I think that as a sociologist, I put my sociological hat on, 
It's all about power. Who has the power to um, make sustained long-term change, right? And I think that athletes in particular, while they don't have, they, they have a lot of, I guess, social capital that they choose to spend on a particular issue. And it depends on whether they have the economic capital to do that as well. But I think where we see it's kind of like that ripple in the ocean where one drop is only going to make a, you know, or in a pond, so we say one drop is only going to make so much of a splash. But if there continues to be more and more ripples, then it has an opportunity to really disrupt the whole pond. And that's where I think, you know, people are trying to let the athletes know. I think that's what the athletes are beginning to start understanding is that it's not just a one-time thing that they need to do. It needs to be part of an ongoing um, conversation that's filled with a chorus of lots of people, both in professional sports, as well as outside of professional. Hmm. You know, and when you, when you say that, I think about, um, there's a there's a program that I enjoy watching uh, called First Take. It's on ESPN, and a lot of people may be familiar with it. It's a quote unquote debate show, um, and one of the hosts is Stephen A. Smith, and uh, who is black. And um, you know, I think oftentimes he presents himself as the you know he, he's in touch with exactly what black people are thinking. <laughs> you know, what all of us are thinking. He's our spokesman, um, and I can assure that's you another that's... conversation as well. <laughs> To someone who gets to position themselves in the media that way, but yes. nevertheless, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, but the reason why I bring him up is because um, you know I mentioned earlier there were players, and in fact there were players that that opted out of going to the bubble and and playing in the uh, in the remainder of the season in the playoffs. Uh, Kyrie Irving is is one of them uh, who, you know, folks may know now plays for the Brooklyn Nets, but was pl uh, a player for the Cleveland Cavaliers, won a championship with LeBron James a few years ago. Um, very one of the, one of the top players in the NBA and uh, he opted not to go uh, and play for reasons uh, to, I guess, to, to in protest uh, or show solidarity of what's going on. Or I guess there's a feeling amongst, and these are young men that we're talking about, as you mentioned, who are, you know, easily can, and in some cases with the two folks that you, you mentioned um, can put themselves literally in the position of um, those who have uh, unfortunately, you know, have suffered catastrophically from um, encounters with police. Um, and, and Stephen A. Smith's, you know, perspective has basically been, you know, you have to, you have to go in order to use the platform and speak up. And, you know, if you don't go, then what are you doing? And also, if you're going to protest, you have to have a plan. You know, you have to have an idea of what, you know, you're going to try to change. You can't say that you just want change. You have to have a plan in place of what you're going to change. But to me, that's, that, that, that takes out of the equation just what you talked about before was that was the, the emotion. And I understand you, maybe you shouldn't react, react just with emotion. But at the same time, it's something that strikes to a chord, <laughs> you know, for uh, obviously that, uh, and, and people would want to react emotionally and, you know, and, and just think, you know, it's, it's, I think it's human natural response that maybe, you know, all this, what we're doing is for nothing. And, you know, if I didn't have this Jersey on, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be, you know, I, I would be just another black guy that could, you know, this could happen to, to me very easily. Um, and so I can understand why, um, folks reacted out of, 
out of anger or, you know, or emotion. And I was wondering what you, what you think about that part of it, that, you know, some people will criticize the athletes by saying you can't just protest or you can't just complain. You have to have a plan in place. Well, you know, I, I, I think a couple of things. One, how can you tell another person how, what they're supposed to, how they're supposed to react or how they're supposed to feel um, in these extremely emotional situations? I mean, like, you know, someone may have had a brother killed on the streets or so, you know, uh, uh, by the police that was never reported. Someone may have been themselves been subjected to, you know, some really bad um you know, bad circumstances. And so we don't know, we can't tell people how to, I don't think we should be in a situation where we tell people how they should react. Now, uh, that's on the short term, but on the long term, again, change does have to have a plan. Change does have to, you have to have a way about going, knowing it, what it is that you're fighting for and what you're, you know, you, know, you have a strategy of how you want to see that accomplished. And that there's, there's, in our in our toolbox, we've got to have all of the range of those things because people do need to sometimes before you can think rationally. Sometimes you need to you know let it all out. Now that's not to say that I'm thinking that people should go out and loot or anything else like that. I, I think that you know um, we need to create space. You know, like for instance, when we saw Doc Rivers, Doc Rivers broke down and cried, right? And he said, which I thought was really really striking and important. He he said. Why is it, how, how much longer really it was a cry and a plea? Why is it that we keep loving America and America won't love us back, doesn't want to love us back? You know, some people might say, well, that was over the top. But to me, I felt it, the man's pain. I felt that what he was saying was, he wasn't saying, I don't love this country. He was saying, why, you know, are you continually to treat us the way that you do when all we want to do is just be treated like everybody else, right? So I feel as though from this perspective that, you know, yeah, there, there is, um, there's room for all of those. And so I, I think going back to your first question, I want to maybe try to tie this all back together. Um, one of the people that I think is using their platform in a very strategic way that is putting pressure uh, and continuing to make sure that there are drops in the, in the pond is LeBron. I think LeBron is, is, is coming at it. He recognizes his power. He recognizes the platform that he has, and he is committed and obligated to using that in every dimension that he possibly can and creating space for other people to do it both in sports and out of sports because you know, he's been gifted in a lot of different ways. And, and, I, and I really appreciate that uh, he's went to the bubble and he's doing what he, he, he's doing and in the way that he, he's chosen to do it. If you wouldn't mind, just remind folks about your football career and whom you played for uh, in the league and what positions did you play? Sure. So, you know, in my book I write about, which is, you know, as you mentioned, um, uh, NFL means not for long, the life and the career of the NFL athlete. And really the reason that I wrote the book is, is it was part of my dissertation, one, but was because I wanted to understand why some athletes have a struggle in their um, transition to life after sports. And what, what has you know, been great about that experience for me and as, is that I've got to speak to a lot of different athletes, not just in the NFL, but WNBA, former NBA, all kinds of things, and realize that, you know, that transition out of life uh, into another, from one world into another is very difficult. And for me, you know, I talk about in the book, there are stars and then there's journeymen, right? And then there's the dedicated fan, right? And so my career was the quintessential journeyman. 
right? I, I went to school at James Madison University. I got drafted in the old USFL. I played for the New Jersey Generals for a short period of time, a year. And then I went up to Canada and I played two years in the Canadian Football League. And then I had a very short I had a sip of a cup of coffee for the 49ers, played there throughout uh, training camp in the first couple games in the season, and that was it. So um, it was, you know, gave me an opportunity in ways that I never knew that I would be drawing on it, but to be able to see the full broad scope from being a star in high school and being a pretty doggone good player in college to being a real journeyman in the NFL um, and the Canadian Football League. It's given me the opportunity to really relate to athletes in every different dimension of their career. Well, I wanted to ask you that because uh, you mentioned Doc Rivers before and the uh, emotional speech that he gave after uh, one of the recent playoff games. And what struck me about that is that he's experienced being a professional athlete and uh, being involved in professional sports on, on a number of different levels at a, as, a, as an athlete, as a, as a coach, uh, as a broadcaster. Um, father and, and, uh, and right, a father exactly. Thought, right? Exactly, yes. Um, and he, um, what struck me about what he said was it, it seemed to indicate a frustration with that if you're a black athlete in America, people certainly root for what you can do, but not who you are. And I wonder if at some point in your career, did you ever feel that way? And how did you feel about it? Well, for me, you know, hey, listen, being, I, I quickly realized, and one of the reasons I left football, even though I had played for four years, but one of the reasons I left is once I got released by the 49ers, I realized that my career always hinged on being somewhere between the 45th player and the 53rd player on the team, right? Which doesn't give you a lot of, you know, you don't have a lot of, um, as we know, in an NFL, there's no contract. There's no guaranteed contracts for the vast majority of players, right? So there wasn't a lot of room for me to, to take a collective breath and say, I made it. Even when I did make it, it was, you know, tenuous at best as to how long that I was going to be able to stay there, right? So, um with that in mind, we have to recognize that everybody who plays in the NFL or everybody who plays in professional sports or even everybody who plays on college is not, they're not the same. They don't, they don't have the same, you know, I guess, social capital or, or financial capital or anything. I remember famously back in when I was playing, um, they asked, uh, what was it, um, uh, who was the coach of the Cowboys? Um, Jimmy, Jimmy, um, Jimmy Jones? Jimmy, Jimmy Johnson. Johnson. Yes. Johnson. They, they asked him, well, what would you do if a player fell asleep in, in, in the, uh, you know, in the locker room or during the meeting? He goes, it depends on who the player was. If it was Emmett, I would say, give him a, a, a pillow and a blanket and let the man sleep. Right. So that's kind of, you know, if you think about all of the things that we're talking about, we're talking about like people having the ability to, 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 you know, use their voice and leverage their position, or if they're in a strong enough position to make a change. How did, how did I feel? You know, I spent much more time in my career doing everything that I could to just make a team, let alone uh, not really think about um, what my social position was or what mark I could make in the community. My faith is really strong with me. So I, I chose to spend a lot of my time, um, 
you know, really committed to the church and the folks that I was involved with to try to make a difference in their lives um, instead of, you know, dealing with other social issues. But trust me, it's not a situation where everybody, you can just look at someone and say, well, they need to be able to do this. So you mentioned you played for the New Jersey Generals in the USFL. Uh, did Donald Trump own the Generals at the time when you played? And uh, did you ever meet him? I was wondering how long you were going to go, uh, it was going to take you to, to bring that up. But yes, he did own the team at the time. I did not get to meet him. I will tell you, um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, it was the most disorganized professional organization I had ever been in my life. And I mean, in and out of sports. Um, I will just go on record and say, I feel like he ran that football team like he runs the country right now. It was, we would go to work and literally you would, you know, you, you, you have a team. You don't even know who your teammates are from one day to the next. You don't know who's, you, you're out there ready to start the game. And some new guy, just because he had, you know, Trump was able to buy him from the NFL. Because remember back in the day, we, like as an example, the, the one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL at the time was Brian Sykes. Sykes, who was on in Cleveland, and you know they paid him a lot of money to leave Cleveland and come to the new league, and then so he was there, and then all of a sudden we got an opportunity to get Doug Flutie, who won the Heisman Trophy, and they bought him in. Well, the whole you can't you got to have continuity, you got to be able to practice together, you got to be able to know one another's names, right? And it was like that. It was it was literally like you know a kangaroo court, like who. What's your name again? Yeah, that was a good play. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't the. It wasn't. It was good for me because I was back at home with my. I played in New Jersey. I'm from Jersey. But on the other respect, um, you know, I was like, this is nuts. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Um, uh, last question for you. I really appreciate you joining me back on the show. Uh, Dr. Robert W. Turner II, uh, author of Not For Long. I, and it's not, it's not a very chill question to probably end the, <laughs> end the segment on, but I'm going to proceed ahead nonetheless. We talked about Colin, Ka Colin Kaepernick a little bit earlier, and I wonder if he had protested and taken a knee when you were active in the league, would you have joined him? That's a great question, but it's a, it's a, it's a quite unfair question. <laughs> and let me say why, because um, completely different era, right? Com times were completely different than, than, than they are today, right? Um, but I'll, I'll, before I even dive into what that, what that means and, and how, you know, how that impacts people's decision, let me go back to what I said before. Hey, I was, you know, I was the quintessential journeyman, right? I, I was willing to run through brick walls to make a team, literally. I remember saying to myself, I will literally run through that wall if that's what it takes to make a professional football team. I wanted it that bad. I was willing to sacrifice everything there was. And, and remember, I was on the lowest end of getting paid. So I was not probably, no matter what, it was in my best interest to remain neutral, right? And so I, wouldn't, I probably would not have... Um, uh, uh, taking a knee back at that time. And I also, in my book, I do write about in terms of black men in the NFL, they understand race very well. And, um, and I say that there's basically three kinds of choices that they, they look at. And one is, um, well, one's a variation of, of 
there's two choices and one of them a variation of one but one there's like the basically what i argue is that there are people who are just you know they take the position of assimilation right that hey i don't I, I, it's almost like Rodney King. Can't we all just get along? Like as long I don't want to make race the issue. My job is to go out there to play. I really play, and I I look at every individual as a, as an individual, and I don't really um, think that we live in a colorblind society. But as long as you keep emphasizing race, then you just keep causing more problems. But then there's other black men who take more of a kind of an approach that, listen, I am a black man first, no matter what, and I have a responsibility to the black to my family, to the black community. And whenever I see racism or an injustice, I'm gonna stand up no matter what, no matter what it costs me, right? And in particular, in the NFL, that is that is a situation that if, you know, as we saw with Kaepernick, that can get you out of the league very quickly in the NFL, right? And so other people say, hey, I can do a lot more good by shutting up and playing, take my politics and my identity politics and racial politics back at home and do in my community because my first and number one priority is to feed my family, right? So I think that, you know, it's, it's never as easy as it's, you know, as it appears. And that's why Colin Kaepernick, as far as I'm concerned, he deserves a ton of credit because he said, hey, listen, I'm willing to sacrifice it all no matter what, I'm willing to do that. Whether I'm the first man on the team, number one, or I'm number 53, it's an injustice and I'm willing to do that, right? And then the other thing is, remember, we had come in the 80s when I was playing, you know, there, there was, I can't say that there, you know, it wasn't really part of people standing out and protesting on a lot of different issues. I played during a time where, if you remember back in the 80s, it was, you know, the number one TV show was the Cosby's, right? Michael Jackson was the next, like, you know, it was, you could walk around with your Malcolm X hat on and, and your uh, cross-colored clothes for those who don't remember us and FUBU and all that other stuff. And you could say, I'm black and I'm proud, right? That, that was your form of protest, just being out in public and saying, yeah, I'm a strong black man, right? So that was kind of more of the tenor that we were in, but that didn't mean that we weren't catching hell in a lot of other places, but we were really showing how much strength we had in, you know, in Hollywood and the box office and all of these other, other types of things. And so it was a much different time. And to, so I think the other thing that I want to close with is recognizing that these young men and young women, we didn't spend much time talking about the women, but truthfully, if we really want to talk about people who are out there on the front lines, it's really the female athletes that are really, really stepping out on all types of injustices, not just racial injustices. We need to recognize that they are really paving the way for us to all pay attention to. So I, I never want to, you know, I, I never want to minimize that. But Remember, we're talking about, in some instances, we're talking about people who are 20, you know, 21, 22, 23 years old, very young people who are still trying to figure out their ways in the world. But what we see today is that they're saying is like, listen, I have an obligation to what I believe in first more than I have an obligation in my sports. They're even saying, what I may do is play professional sports or play college sports. But that doesn't define who I am. I think that's where the fundamental shift a lot of what we see today compared to when I was playing back in the day. Hmm. Well, that's, that's terrific. And I, uh, once again, I appreciate you coming back on the show uh, to talk about these, these issues with me. Um, the book is called Not For Long, 
the life and career of the NFL athletes by Dr. Robert W. Turner II. And uh, once again, appreciate you joining me on the show uh, today. Uh, if uh, folks want to get a hold of you and want to find out more about you and, and your work, how can they do that? Well, I'm at George Washington University. I'm an assistant professor at the, um, in the School of Medicine and Health Sciences. But I would direct everyone to go to my personal website, which is robertturnerphd.com. I have my Twitter handle is the same, um, at robertturnerphd. Um, Instagram, those whole things that can find me there. Please reach out. Love to talk to you. And I also want to put in a plug because we talked about um, LeBron, but you know, two years ago as we talked, um, LeBron was the executive producer for a student athlete with, um, it was on HBO. You can still find it on the HBO films. I helped, you know, really deeply involved in that. And uh, Trish Dalton and Charmaine Obadoy, all these great people that really talk about, again, the exploitation of college athletes, which is very much germane to the conversations that people are having now about, you know, the name, image, and likeness and the, and, you know, in the NCAA. And again, these people are out there fighting for um, justice for athletes so that way they can have the same opportunities as everybody else in society. Fantastic. Well, that sounds like fantastic work. And um, thank you once again for, for being on the show today. Really, really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. All right. And we'll be back to wrap the show in just a moment. <laughs> 